Welcome to Church Premier's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that is moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you in your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Uh, Today, we have uh, Lisa Childers uh, with us. Uh, She's written the book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. She's a former member of, maybe many of y'all might know this, former member of a band called Zoe Girl back in the day. Hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit today. Elisa has two kids, married, um, been in and out of church life, in and out of ministry life, uh, again, in this Christian band years ago. And we're just really, really uh, grateful to, for her to take some time out of her schedule and be with us on Churchpreneurs. Welcome, Elisa. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today and all the way, you know, from Nashville to Germany. I know, right? Here we are. It's awesome, right? Thousands of miles apart. And uh, yeah, I mean, look at us like here in my little office in Germany, you there. This is great. So uh, thank you, Zoom, right? So that's right. (laughs) So here we go. Let's jump right into it. Alisa, you wrote this book. Um, What let's just it's it's about progressive Christianity. Um, that's the, the definition you give to it. Kind of give us uh, just a real quick uh, snapshot in a sentence or two. What is progressive Christianity and what does it have to do with the church? Um, you know, give us just a real quick uh, hitter. What is progressive Christianity? And we'll dig into it. Well, yeah. So interestingly, the roots of progressive Christianity go back to your neck of the woods in Germany, the German scholarship that arose in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So some of that theological liberalism, if you took those theological conclusions and you sort of married that with this postmodern cultural relativism that we're seeing, and then you just drop it right in the middle of the evangelical church, uh, then you get progressive Christianity. So it's it's essentially the same kind of theological conclusions as the that German scholarship from the turn of the century, but it's it's applied to the evangelical church and with some relativism mixed in. Very good. So um, th- that's led to some things. I mean, you, you, you write about it in your book. Uh, I mean, I got my copy right here. It's noted up really good. Um, so we're going to dig into it today. But um, tell us how you came to come across this. What I mean, you were a Zoe girl um, singing in Christian concerts, churches. I guess you had lots of enge- enc- encounters with churches and youth pastors and all that and youth groups. Uh, how did you get to come across this? What happened there? Yeah, so so this is actually a really huge part of my story, which is why I'm so passionate to talk about this movement. But like you mentioned, touring all over the country and in various places in the world with Zoe Girl, we basically encountered every kind of church you can imagine, from small liturgical churches to the mega churches, even a couple of faith and prosperity churches, although I didn't really know about that then. And uh, just got to meet all kinds of different Christians and mostly had really great experiences. But, you know, I kind of got to see some of the the places that the church was getting things wrong. You know, maybe hyper-legalism in certain areas or abuses of power and, and things like that. And so I think around the time that Zoe Girl came off the road, uh, by now I was married and I, was, I had a new baby. Um, we started attending a church that had some of these same um, observations. You know, they, they were kind of tired of the, of, you know, just the fakeness, I guess, or they, they, were, they wanted to be authentic Christians living for God. They didn't want any of the junk or the bells and whistles that maybe some churches had added. And so that was very attractive to me and to my husband. And so um, another thing that we really loved about this church was the pastor's intellectual approach to sermons. We had never been exposed to that really. And honestly, he used more scripture than almost any pastor I had ever heard. It was just so Bible filled and his insights were so rich and we just loved it. We loved the people. And so about eight months into my time 
attending this church, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group that would be like a study and discussion group. He actually compared it to seminary. Right. He said, so if you, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side, basically having the same education as people who go through seminary. Well, this sounded really exciting to me because, first of all, I loved his sermons and the way he thought. And so I thought this was just going to be like a deep dive Bible study. This is going to grow me deeper in my faith. And I Surprise. showed up. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So I show up for the first class with my notebook and my Bible ready to go. And this pastor basically tells this small group that he's actually an agnostic. And it, that just blew me away. Because now you use the term, let me interrupt there, you use the term yeah. hopeful agnostic in yeah. the book. Now, try to, can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think he used the word hopeful agnostic to soften the part about being agnostic. So maybe a softer version of agnostic, like he hopes that Jesus is real. He I hopes see. that Christianity is true and that God exists and all of that. And he hopes we're getting this right. I but got you. he's very unsure about what he believes, which really blew me away because he would speak with such authority on Sunday mornings. And it was really confusing, the guy that was at the class versus the guy that was preaching these sermons on Sunday. It was very confusing. And so I just thought, well, I'm I'm being judgmental. I need to not be so judgmental, and I'll just, you know, maybe he's just being honest or authentic or something. So, right. But goodness, so uh, the as the class goes on, basically all of the things that I'd ever believed about God and Jesus and about the Bible were sort of picked apart, explained away, deconstructed. You know, we're hearing that word a lot. And so a lot of people in the class, including the pastor, were going through a process of deconstruction, although I didn't know what that was yet. I just knew that my faith was under attack, you know. So so tell us, do you bring the, that's great timing, deconstruction. What What is that? I mean, I think my audience, I hope, would kind of know what that is a little bit, but uh, kind of unpack that word for us a little bit. What's happening? Right. So deconstruction is a sort of a rite of passage in the progressive Christian church. So this is almost, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is almost like the baptism in the progressive church. You, whatever, because, because mostly progressive Christians are ex-evangelicals. This, these are people that are leaving their evangelical faith and embracing this broader spirituality of progressive Christianity. And so they go through this process of uh, it's not just about going through some doubts. It's not just about examining everything you believe, deciding what you still think is true, and then going with that. Deconstruction itself is rooted in postmodernism. So it has to do with deconstructing what, what would actually be viewed as your construct. So with the, with the view that there is no objective truth, the view that truth is relative or if there is objective truth, it can't be known. That's the foundation of deconstruction. So basically, you're deconstructing the construct of truth you were given. And so it's really not just about kind of thinking, okay, am I wrong about this? Am I right about this? It's, it's basically explaining away everything that you had believed ever since you, know, you were raised in the church and all of that. So I, I think it's, it's like doubt plus doubt being the highest virtue. This is something you right, want to, you right. don't want to land on truth. You don't want to find answers because that would make you small-minded. That would make you, uh, you know, dogmatic or something. Or questioning and doubt. Yes, are like the highest the value. Highest, yeah, yeah, I think right. So let me get your insights into deconstructionism and progressive Christianity. Um, we got so many people, let's say, coming out with their deconstruction story. Michael Gunger, Marty Sampson, Josh Harris, Ear Biscuits, most recently, podcasters, Rhett mm -hmm. and Link. Um, and with things about millions and millions of YouTube hits for their deconstruction story, um, why is this happening? And what's what's this moment now in, in history, in church history? Why is it happening now? What's what's the thing facilitating this? Can you put your finger on it? Yeah, I, I think there can be different reasons. Um, I think, A, we're not giving young people in the church enough good theology and 
reasons for why we believe what we do and why we believe it's true. Um, but, but you know, it's not just that, because there can be people who, there are people who have told deconstruction stories who know all the apologetic arguments. They've had rich theology their whole lives. But I would say that that would be the starting point is just, um, you know, I did an interview with John Cooper from Skillet. You remember Skillet? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Still huge. But, um, Absolutely, Skillet, you know, man. So he's, you know, he had some really interesting thoughts about this too, where he made the point that young people have never been taught to think really. So you, you read an argument and then you read the conclusion of the argument and then you decide whether or not you think they made their case and you agree with the conclusion or you disagree with the conclusion. But in the soundbite culture where kids are watching a four minute video on something and then they think they understand it, but you really can't understand something in four minutes. This is the point John was making. It, it's like somebody can just deconstruct their Christianity that quickly because they've never right. really been taught to think through. It's like, that's an element. But honestly, I think, I think our flesh and rebellion is a huge element in it too. We have a culture that's basically telling you you can write your own morality, whatever you want to be true regarding morals and ethics and sexuality and whatever it might be, you can just decide what that is and everybody just has to go with it. And so I think that the, pr the cultural pressure, and I think also uh, people motivated out of a genuine love for people, well, I wanna love my friends who are struggling with certain things. And so again, they've been told by the world that the way to love their friends is to affirm every behavior and all of these kinds of things. And, and I think that there can be some confusion about that, but uh, it's, it's really an epidemic uh, that I'm, I'm seeing happen. And in all of these stories, what's really interesting to me is that they'll always bring up some apologetics type things like, well, you know, the, I don't know if we have an accurate Bible or nobody talks about the problem of suffering or things like that. And, but I don't think that that's always the core reason there's there's right. always this thread going through all the deconstruction stories that they've already decided at the outset that the bible is wrong about morality that's the question i had then yeah. so are those just like reasons like oh finally i found a reason or I finally i found some uh some logic to this that that oh look uh you know any kind of thing that that you've mentioned in your book you know oh look uh we didn't have early transcripts you know or yeah. the, there's no uh, logic to, you know to this or that or whatever whatever yeah. reason they give it's finally like oh i finally got a reason could that be it i do think that could be it in fact i've talked about when i talk about doubt I think doubt can be a very healthy and good part of the growth of a Christian when they're really saying, okay, now, do I really believe this? And what do I believe? Why do I believe that? I think that can be incredibly healthy and important. But there are different kinds of doubt. So there, you can read books on doubt, and they'll give you several different diagnoses for doubt. Either it's, you know, maybe it's intellectual doubt, or there's moral doubt, or there's uh, emotional doubt, all kinds of different things. But I, and I think those are good and helpful categories. But I think at the end of the day, there's really just two categories of doubt. There's the kind of doubt you experience when you really want to know the truth about who God is, how he revealed himself in the world. And you're going to dig down every rain, you know, every, every slippery slope to try to find truth because you want truth and you want what's real. That would be one kind of doubt. The other kind of doubt would be they've already decided they're out and now they're looking for reasons to justify the unbelief they already have. And that's where, you know, you'll always, it, it just seems like it just follows a pattern. They begin to doubt. There's, there's a reason it's, it's moral. They, they don't like the teaching on sexuality or this, and they find it oppressive. So then they read a Bart Ehrman book and, oh, well, guess what? The Bible's bunk, so I can, I'm out. And I think that that can be a, a way that people go about it. Right, right. So I'd love to uh, dig into your past a little bit. Uh, you know, when when uh, I heard you coming out with with all with this book and your podcast and everything, just followed you for for recently. I haven't followed you for quite a long time, but um, Zoe girl, I thought like Zoe girl, like, like yeah, like are you kidding, <laughs> Zoe girl? Like, and I'm like, you know, uh, you get me. I mean, like, yeah, what? like serious. So I want to dig into your time with within the Christian bubble, let's say for a moment. Yeah. 
Um, I remember as a youth pastor, we used to get these uh, youth leaders only pizza boxes. And we had a video, Zoe Girl video all the time. My girls like loved it. Um, And I have to apologize, actually. I think we were that my my kids were that group who was waiting on Toby Mac. Um, (laughs) You mentioned in your book, you know. (laughs) Like, oh, come on. Uh, sorry. Yeah, you know, I have to yeah. apologize for that. But, yeah. uh, you know, is there um, something to the Christian bubble and your encounters in, 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 in your career, um, uh, this this entertainment driven Christianity? Mm. Could this be a, a problem, a problem that we I mean, look, I'm a youth pastor. I, I, 20 years in youth ministry. I've done some entertainment driven stuff. No question. Right. Mm-hmm. Are we culpable a little bit? Wow, what a great question. Um, I, I think I think we are. The whole time I was in Zoe Girl, I really struggled with. I had a ton of tension with this the whole time. Um, and probably just to give a little understanding to why that is, my dad was a contemporary Christian music artist as well. In fact, one of the pioneers of the whole industry. But when that started, none of those guys were doing this to be known or to make money. Nobody made money. They'd get in a van and I mean, they, they didn't make money doing this. That wasn't they even did it for the love, right? Yeah. They, <laughs> they didn't have a category for making a living doing this in the beginning. So all of that stuff kind of came later. And so all my life watching my dad do this for the ministry. And then he never did. I mean, my entire life, he never asked a fee to go anywhere. He would take a love offering, get, watch him give tons of CDs away for free. This was something that was just all about the ministry. And so when I got into Zoe Girl and all of a sudden, you know, they're lining people up 100, 200, 300 people deep to pass by a table I'm sitting at for me to sign the picture picture, and just moving them through like cattle. I remember going to our manager or somebody and just saying, I don't want to do this. This doesn't feel right. And then the manager, you know, the manager said, well, you know, here's the problem though. I I understand, you know, you don't want to promote the celebrity thing, but people expect it. And then if you don't do it, they, they think you're stuck up or they think that you don't have time for them. And so there was this tension always, um, and, and with things like that. There's the business side of things, and then there's the ministry side of things, because the label, they're wanting to make their money, and they, they might you know have a good heart for ministry. I'm not saying every record executive is just in it for money, but ultimately they have higher ups that they've got to get them, you know, they've got to hit their numbers. And so if that's the core, it, it is going to affect the celebrity culture. And so I think when we see Christian artists in particular, or people who were authors, platformed celebrity type Christians going through this deconstruction, I think an element can be in there. In fact, John Steingart, I had a conversation with him and he has said this in his, he was, uh, you know, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson. He's since deconstructed right. now and um, interestingly uses that term hopeful agnostic for himself, which I thought was really interesting. I'm starting to see other people use that. Um, but but he made that point. It's like you're, you're instantly, you get a record deal and you're just some youth group kid. And then all of a sudden right. people are viewing you like you're a pastor and they've got you on this pedestal. Right. And then you've got the business side of things where they're, you know, you're a product kind of to them, you feel like. And so there's all of this tension around the whole thing that I think can definitely make people vulnerable if they don't have a rock solid relationship with Jesus for themselves. And we shouldn't assume that everybody who goes into music does, you know, like I said, it could just be some youth group kid that gets a record deal and maybe he's comfortable with Christianity and doesn't even maybe realize he's not really a Christian because he's just kind of grown up in it. But I think the rubber meets the road, and then they're like, well, wait a second. I've never even thought about it. I got a deal when I was 17, and I never even thought this, this stuff through. And right. so I think that that can be an element. Yeah, so um, you make a great point. And, and you mentioned John uh, Cooper. Uh, you know, he— he had mentioned that with uh, Marty Sampson, I believe, um, in his deconstruction. Hey, we put people up so quickly on pedestals. This kid's 17 years old. He's been in his youth group, just got saved, maybe, 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 maybe not, you know? Right. And then all of a sudden, they're spokespeople for whatever, right? Um, and then also, like, the entertainment industry, just entertainment in general, um, you know, have, have we hooked people with a thing? And, and then they're, you know... And they're deconstructing from from that. Could that be possibly? I do. I think I think that's true too. A friend of mine named Shelby Abbott wrote a book about doubt, and he talks about this because he actually goes back uh, with uh, he knew Rhett and Link back in the crew days. He works with crew still, 
And he's like, you know, things like cultural Christianity, the, the bells and whistles and the ribbons and the trappings, like deconstruct that all you want. But, you know, don't deconstruct the real thing because exactly. that's true. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, you can throw all that stuff out all you want. But I think that we're, what we're seeing, the fruit of, and I, I hate to be cliche because this is always, people are always harping on this, but I think there's some truth to it. When we've viewed youth ministry as like a four-hour holding tank with pizza, you know, <laughs> what do we expect? Did that. <laughs> yeah. right. But what do we expect? You know, it's like kids yep. kids haven't been given much of a reason. And I, I don't want to dunk on I, I knew some wonderful youth pastors growing up that would have big skate nights for all the kids. And I knew lots of unsaved kids that would come to these skate nights. And I get the heart behind that. And if it gets a kid in the door, I think that's great. But when we're actually doing the teaching and we're discipling kids, I think we have to be really intentional to teach them really good theology, what we believe, how to, not just what to think, but how to think so that they, when these ideas come in, they can assess them properly and think through them without just accepting them. Yeah. And so I think that's what we see with all these deconstructions is all of the, you know, like I mentioned, I had critiques of things that were going on, but I think because I had been given such a solid foundation about what real Christianity is, it was a lot easier for me to separate that and go, okay, that's not right. Yeah. This is actually, the gospel is actually the answer for that. Um, but I think maybe some people that will, were given a more cultural Christianity, they, they've never been taught how to parse those things out. Exactly. Now, defining and differentiating between gospel and cultural Christianity, that's the challenge. And I don't think we, we've given people the, or, or young people the tools for that. And I think yeah. youth ministers are rethinking this. And this is, this is becoming the issue for youth pastors. Like, I don't want my mm -hmm. kids to deconstruct either. You know, like, how can I instill in them the true gospel? to shift gears um, to talk about women in apologetics. I'm just so excited for you and for uh, think people like uh, Marcy Montenegro. You have her on a lot. Mama Bear Apologetics. Uh, all the folks you have on. Holly Pivik. Um, you've had her on a long time ago now. Um, tell me, uh, what what do you think this is? What, what's the rise and so many wonderful women rising up in this area? And Mama Bear Apologetics is a very telling name. Do you think that uh, in this genre, uh, some of these women feel like their children, their cubs are being attacked? Yeah, I think that's the answer. I think the reason that we're seeing so many women emerge in apologetics right now um, I don't know if this is unpopular to say or not, but women are naturally more nurturing. I think we have this right. nurturing kind of, we connect with God more emotionally, which is great. So there are a lot of women who would say, well, I don't need the intellectual reasons because I connect with God emotionally or, or something along those lines. But then their kid goes off to college. In fact, I, I can't tell you how many times I would be teaching an apologetics class to women and a woman would come up to me. This happens every time. A woman will come up to me, and this is this is one that happened um, a couple few years ago. A woman came up and she said, "Well, I don't need this for me, apologetics, but okay. um, I need you to talk to my daughter because I raised her in the church. I told her all the right things, and then she went to college and she met a pantheist. And now she's dating this guy, and he's a pantheist. And now she's a pantheist. What do I do?" And and it's like, well, the answer is not for me to talk yeah, to your it's daughter. Not my, yeah, yeah. The answer is for you wow. to know the reasons. And so I think what it is, is women see the fruit in their own kids and they're like, okay, we, we gotta, we gotta get ourselves together here. And we've got, we gotta teach our kids these, you know, better reasons than, than maybe our parents did. And, um, and so I think that largely it's going to have to do with women, maybe around kids, but also, um, I think it was Mary Jo Sharp. I heard her say this on a podcast. She's an apologist. And she said, uh, when they questioned or did studies, or I don't know if it was a study or not, but maybe just her observation, but she said, men generally are drawn to apologetics to answer their own questions, whereas women are generally drawn to apologetics to help other people right. with their questions. Yes. 
So that's I think great. that's why we're seeing the rise of women is because we're seeing the rise of skepticism, which involves people we love, our friends, our co our coworkers, people we're in small group with, our children, and and women are relational in that sense that they want to help their friends and their family. Right, right. That's so interesting. I'm just so blessed. I'm I, I'm honestly personally blessed by so many women rising up in this field to defend the faith, you know, contend for the faith. Jude says it right. Uh, contend for the faith. And I'm just, I'm just awesome. I just think it's great. So So let's uh, shift gears and talk about your book a little bit. I mean, I'm just so I, I, I was eating it up. I'll be honest. I'm just going to show it because I have been eating it up. Those are all markings, honestly. Uh, and and uh, but I love the, I have to say I love the uh, the 80s themed sections. Um, you know, only yeah. people in our generation understand <laughs> yeah. some of this. Like you made a uh, it's like Punky Brewster or something you said and the A team. And I'm I'm like only we get that. You know, yeah. like. It's true. Monkey it's it's true. Saturday morning cartoons. They're Dukes the best. of Hazard. That's the one you missed. Did you write about that? I don't think I. I think oh, I missed it. But I mean, there's so missed. many greatest American superhero. Remember that one? Oh man, there's so much that you. you there's yeah. so much. But you got to have the Dukes of Hazard next time in the I next know edition, what's wrong. right? <laughs> so, anyways, um, on page 162 of your book, once one thing really smashed me across the face. Nadia Bolts Weber's. Uh, you mentioned her book on fluid sexuality, and she affirms same-sex relationships, gender nonconformity, abortion, and even moderate, and I wondered, like, moderate porn pornography use. Why only moderate? Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, it, and she's just not she's just suggesting a few amendments to the Christian sexual ethic, but she's saying, I am want to burn the effing thing down. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. you know, trying to... But that's what she says. She does. She says the whole thing. So what? Yeah, right. So what kind of reset? I mean, first of all, this, this sentence doesn't even make quite sense. Like why moderate pornography use if we're blowing the whole thing up? Right. Right. Why not yeah. go all the way? Like, I mean. Right. Right. She's got it. That's an ethic by itself. Check yeah. that out. Yeah. You know, moderate yeah. pornography abuse because it objectifies women. Right. Well, I think in her view on the moderate porn use is she's she's putting pornography like in the category of alcohol. So if you don't abuse it, it's okay. But if it becomes addictive to you or if it, you know, overtakes your life in the sense that yeah, it, it can become an addiction. So that's why she uses the word moderate. Sorry, that's yeah. That's garbage. I know. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I interviewed Sean McDowell about this right. and I I told him that and he was like that that is nonsense. <laughs> and he told me it's later, he's like, I would debate everybody. her on that. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, what what kind of reset do you think they propose? What what are they getting at? What are the dangers too, in your opinion? You mean in the area of sexuality with yeah, progressive so like Christians? Yeah. Blowing it, they want to blow it up. What's the reset? Yeah. What's the end game? And then what's the danger of that, in your opinion? Yeah. So one of the things that many people will be able to observe about the progressive church is their shift on LGBTQ, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction. But what I think a lot of Christians don't realize is they might just think, well, they're maybe they're just you know, reading the Bible differently on that, and they're changing their mind on that, but everything else is kind of the same. It's really not. What, what people have to understand is that in progressive Christianity, it's not just ha surrounding homosexuality. I mean, in Nadia's book, and I've heard this from many progressive leaders and even pastors, saying that the idea that we would tell kids to wait until they get married to have sex, that actually stunts their sexual growth. This is something that's going to hinder their sexual flourishing. And so we shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, and, and one point they'll make is, you know, so many people don't even make it to their wedding day and then the fallout of that. Well, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to tell kids to just go have sex, you know? So it's, 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 it's in all realms of sexuality. So they're going to go with culture on gender norms. They're going to go with culture uh, in the whole trans transgender issue. They're not going to deviate from that narrative at all. So what's the line, though? I mean, how far back does the line have to go before they would say, oh, let's bring it in a little bit, you know, like... Well, that's a great question, because a question I would have for Nadia Boltz-Weber, because according to her definitions... Uh, holiness means unity. So it means like unity between two people. 
and whole, you know, unity with God, which is actually, by the way, the complete opposite of what holiness actually means. God's holiness means he can't have any unity with sin. So it's, I don't, and she doesn't ever say like, oh, it's because of the Hebrew word here or this, you know, I have some st statistics or some data. Yeah. There's nothing. She just says, this is what holiness means. And, um, and just. Well, what if I want to have unity sure. with a, a boy, the man love well, boy? I mean, you know. That's and that's the thing. So I think that would be easier for her to answer because she would say, well, you know, the, the boy isn't of age. But what I'd love to ask her is, according to her definitions, if if she says that, you know, basically going with the World Health Organization, that sexual flourishing has to do with consent and whatever's making you thrive. And, you know, and, and she even says at one point in her book, and this is a paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, right. but she says something like whatever is making you flourish sexually, that's what I wanna see for your life. Well, what if three people, adults, consenting adults, believe that being together as a threpple is right. going to cause them to flourish right. sexually. And I, I don't think she would be able to say they shouldn't do it. And I don't even know if she'd be, she might, she might not even be uncomfortable with that, but well, the, logic, I don't. the logic doesn't even work actually for the boy issue. You know, if you, because the boy can decide at five, four, if he wants to yeah. be a girl. Well, right? that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, know. so I don't know what she would say to that. It's speculation. But, I mean, it would be interesting to ask some of these questions using her definitions and her logic. Right, right. Okay, what about this and her, what, you know, what about bestiality? What if somebody just like exactly dog or something, you know? You said it. I wasn't going to bring it up. But, like, look, <laughs> well, if, if you like your dog, I don't know. Oh, I mean, crazy. It's kinda, but you have to, you almost have to use those extreme examples to show why right. this doesn't work how because, the logic yeah you can kind of you can apply that to maybe a, a engaged couple who really love each other they know they're going to get married and oh, okay it's making them flourish you could you could almost like in your flesh let that slip by but you have to apply that logic consistently and right. if you do Across. that it's it's not working yeah it doesn't work Right. So I, I just thought that was like shocking. I showed that to a few people that quote and they're like, I mean, even a pastor would use that in a book. Like what the F word? Like how? I don't know. The Gospels are the canon within the canon. Uh, page 163, the point of gravity is the story of Jesus, the Gospel. This is also Boltzweber. Uh, Richard Rohr, you you quote uh, several times on the Jesus hermeneutic. Um, what does a progressive movement mean by this? What's the end game of sort of recanonizing the Gospels alone? I would say that in the progressive movement, that's not like a universal thing about the Gospels. That's very, that's Nadia Boltzweber's specific hermeneutic. She's going to put, and some do, like Red Little Christians, um, kind of that, that uh, element of progressive is going to say, well, the Gospels have a higher level of authority. But it is a fruit of the way progressive Christians read the Bible, which is that it's not fully authoritative from Genesis to Revelation. You can pick which parts you think are the Word of God. You can pick pick which parts you think are truthful, you can pick which parts you think are myth, which parts are morally repugnant and you should reject. And so Rachel Held Evans talks about this in her book on the Bible called Inspired, where she talks about God, he's giving you this God-given conscious. You use your conscience to decide those kinds of things, even when you're reading right. the Bible. Right. And so, um, and so, you know, if they take the, the four gospels and make that you know, the, the core canon or whatever, that's a fruit of just the general view of the Bible that progressive Christians have. Right. So you go on further on with Richard Rohr. Uh, uh, now, just for, I don't know if my viewers are, have heard of Richard Rohr. So he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a Catholic mystic. He's a Franciscan friar, and he founded the uh, Center for Action and Contemplation, I think in Arizona, which is like a contemplative prayer center. They do uh, centering prayer, all kinds of things that really more mimic the, the more Eastern and Buddhist type right. of meditation. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's a mess and he's <laughs> right. so influential in this movement. Just so, so influential. I, I was actually thinking like, if you have to say that you're not a pantheist, but you're a panentheist, <laughs> then you're yeah. a pantheist. 
Well, and if you, like his book on the Trinity, he, you know, a couple of times at least he says, now I know this sounds new age, but it's not. But I'm like, if, if you, you have, have to, to do say, a disclaimer, yeah. Yeah, I know this sounds like new age. No, he's he's very yeah. new age. Yeah, so then he also has the uh, Christ Consciousness book. What's that book called? Is Universal it, Christ. Universal Christ, thank you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's in the title, people. So, I mean, anyway, so he met, you mentioned him in, in the, the sense of the Jesus hermeneutic. Does just interpret scripture the way that Jesus did. You're quoting him in your book on page 164. He ignores, denies, or openly opposes his own scripture whenever they're imperialistic, punitive, exclusionary, or tribal. First of all, I'd like to ask Roar, like, uh, when does Jesus do that? Yeah. Jesus well, so his own scripture? this is an interesting question, which is really fresh on my mind because I just wrote a research paper on this hermeneutic and I right. used Saw that. The passages that he, because he actually does cite like four passages where he's supposedly giving examples of Jesus doing this. But every single one of these passages, he's taking them radically out of context. So there's the Matthew 5 Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you heard it said, but I say, and he does, he has six statements that he frames this way. And so often he'll say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say, you know, basically show mercy. And so he's like, well, look, he's contradicting the Old Testament. Well, okay. he's completely taking this out of context because in every single one of these views, what Jesus was actually correcting was the Pharisees' traditions they had added to the scriptures or their misunderstandings of the scriptures. So when they say, you know, you've heard it said, and then I say, He's often, he's, he's pitting the truth against their distortions, not against the actual scriptures. So another example he uses is where Jesus is reading from the Isaiah scroll. And so he's reading the prophecy about the Messiah, and then he stops mid-sentence and leaves off the part about the vengeance in the day of the Lord. But what Roar doesn't tell you is that Jesus had a very specific reason for doing that. He said right after that, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. So what he was saying was, this part of the prophecy is being fulfilled right now in my first coming. Well, the vengeance in the day of the Lord won't happen until his second coming. That wasn't being fulfilled in that moment yet. So he wasn't denying that, opposing it, or even ignoring it. He was making a different point. But it's like, if somebody doesn't know to look deeper, well, they'll just read that. Oh, Richard Rohr's right. He stops mid-sentence. I guess he's right. Jesus ignored the scripture right. you know and it's so it's so right. deceptive well that's why you gotta uh check jesus before you wreck jesus you know what i'm saying like yeah I, <laughs> yes. like, what are, i don't know why aren't people looking at the whole thing anyways so yeah. that's richard Rohr. it sounds a lot to me like like the thomas jefferson bible um yeah. i don't know if you're familiar with that we're just kind of yes. like just mark up, Cut out um, the parts you don't like and... we don't like that we're just gonna yeah. kind of do away with that um the NAR also does this too, New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah. Um, Bill Johnson, a prominent uh, lead, NAR leader, has said Jesus is perfect theology. So in other words, whatever you see in Jesus, just do that. Everything else yeah. can kind of leave aside. It's not important. I, I, I kind of find it interesting, like, well, wait a minute. Um, what about the casting out of the, the temple? He calls Herod a fox, right. you know, a uh, brood of vipers. That's not real White nice. Whitewashed tombs. You yeah. know, exactly. Like, uh, what about that? So uh, do you care? You, you think this is similar? Or you see some similarities in these things? That's an interesting question. So I, I definitely see some overlap. I think that with... Progressive Christianity, if a pastor is all the way into progressive Christianity, they're not a Christian. This is a completely different religion with a totally different gospel. The tricky thing with NAR is that they're still going to affirm the core essential tenets of the Christian faith. Okay. So I think there can be a lot of genuinely saved people in that movement who are just deceived. They don't realize the false teaching that they're getting from that movement. How would you tell us, so let me interrupt there, what you said, uh, progressive Christianity is is not, when you're totally deep, when you're entrenched, that's the different gospel. Tell us why you would, give us a few like pointers, what would, you know, the atonement I think you mentioned, right, T just a few pointers, why they're different. Yeah, so if we view the gospel as, the, it's the good news, right? So what is this good news? Well, it's the story of God's redemptive acts throughout history, redeeming sinful man to himself. And that's going to compass a whole lot of other things, but it's going to start with creation. It was good. Man chooses to rebel against God, introducing sin into the world. Now we're separated from God. Jesus comes to redeem us. God, the word becomes flesh, lives a sinless life, takes our sins upon himself at the atonement on the cross, 
physically raises from the dead, and then he will return again to judge the living and the dead. You know, if we just encapsulate the Christian gospel that way, I think that's something that most Christians, certainly the earliest Christians tracing through church history would agree with that. But in progressive Christianity, they deny almost every single one of those things at least implicitly. So right. they deny that sin separates us from God. This is not something that's even in their paradigm. And right. so that makes the atonement unnecessary. So they refer to this as cosmic child abuse. They, they deny the atonement of Jesus. They deny hell. They, there's, they, they just completely change the gospel and deny it on every point. Whereas in the NAR, most people I think that go to say Bethel Church are going to say, no, that's the gospel, what you just said. They're not going to deny right. that. But right. it's all the things they're adding that's so dangerous and, and so deceptive. But with that said, though, I'm really watching to see where these overlap because already I've watched a sermon from Bethel where they're quoting progressive Christian leaders like William Paul Young and, and not just from the shack. Yeah, not just from the shack, but from his much more theologically clear book, Lies We Believe About God, which is heresy. Wow, and they're quoting so from bad. that. And I, I've had people tell me they've listened to podcasts from um, high-level leaders uh, at Bethel and other places, and they're denying that we're sinners now. And, and right. I can't speak to that myself because I haven't heard that. But if there's— Pelagianism if there's, is, is, yeah. is sort of, yeah, pretty yeah, full so, on there. So I'm definitely looking for the overlap. I definitely think they're two sides of the same coin, though, in the sense that um, it's, it's, it has to do with scriptural authority. So if the Bible isn't your final authority for all things, now, and, and that's where NAR is tricky, because they'll say, well, no, the Bible is our authority, but then they have all these, these revelations so bad, yeah. that you are expected to obey as if they are on the level of Scripture, and that's where that can get kind of twisty. Well, but that's the point. The Bible. That's the point. The apostles have revelation uh, that, that they don't say they would add it to Scripture, but it base, in principle, it does. I You're mean, expected you know, to obey it as if it yeah. is God literally talking. Right. So, yeah, it is the and same. Exactly. If it's a revelation from God and it's wrong or it's, you know, then what, you know, if it's from God, I should obey it, right? If, if it's from God, I should listen. Anyways, we're getting off topic there. <laughs> but, uh, hey, man, your gospel presentation, I think I'm saved. Oh, man. I, you need to give an altar really call, <laughs> like right now. I'm altar, you know. Anyway. think McLaren, Brian McLaren, uh, I mean, that that was emerging, then it kind of morphed into progressive mm -hmm. Christianity. Brian McLaren wrote a, a generous orthodoxy. Uh, that was kind of the beginning, uh, beginning beginnings of the emergent, then then it morphed into progressive Christianity. Anadia Boltz-Weber, Rob Bell, why do you think any of these progressive leaders are doing any of this? Why do church, why do theology, why write books, spread the message of neo-orthodoxy and progressive Christianity if we're all good? Yeah. No one's well, going to hell. Yeah, I know. And so I think that the progressive response to that would be, I think sometimes people misunderstand progressive Christianity. Okay. Like, oh, they're just a bunch of hipsters in skinny jeans and glasses that just want to be cool with the world. I, I don't think well. that's it. They're, they're, well, there might be some lay-level <laughs> people, but the thought leaders themselves, like Brian McLaren is a very smart guy. He's very yeah, no, well-read. No question. No question. I mean, Pete Enns, uh, Rachel Held Evans was formidable intellectually, just mm -hmm. really smart people who are analyzing these things, that doesn't mean they're coming to the right conclusions by saying they're smart. But um, I, I don't think, generally speaking, it's just a movement that like just wants to drink. In fact, they were re rebelling against the whole idea of just going to church to get your foyer coffee, and you know they wanted something deeper. And so I think right. that they, what they discovered though, was this: rather than going deeper into the roots and the core of Christianity, they're looking everywhere and and broadening it out. And so it might be that there's a soft spot in their heart for Jesus, although they disagree with Jesus on almost everything. You know, they, they agree with him on a few things, but right. on his view of the Bible and, and what he was accomplishing on the cross and his view of the gospel, they disagree with him. Um, but, you know, I've even heard progressive Christians like Richard Rohr say, they're the ones trying to bring back historic Christianity. We're the ones that have hijacked the gospel. And so I think there's, there, it's, there's, a, there's a real passion, a genuine passion for their cause, um, but but I think they're wrong. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point. You know, they, they say we're bringing back, you know, so that's the elitism. You know, we're bringing back the original, uh, you know, we're, we're the OGs, right? Uh, <laughs> what, it, that, that's a little, uh, 
a little yeah. bit proud. Well, and a it's little, just incorrect like because really yeah. what they're doing is going into the Middle Ages and pulling out some mystic they like, and they're saying, you know, <laughs> we're bringing that back. Well, you know, you can't, you, that's not how it works. You can't just find <laughs> one guy that was doing some weird stuff in the right. 1100s and then call that Christianity. Well, we um, like in the fact, Gnostics, you know? I yeah, mean, they do that, and they'll appeal to guys like Origen. Now, Origen did a lot of valuable stuff, but he's he's also was condemned as a heretic. It, you know, it, there's some debate about how that happened and over what and when, but, but he wasn't, his conclusions about whatever he was saying about universalism was not accepted among the church. This, even back then, they're going, no, that's not Christianity. We're not, you can't bring that in here. You bring up a real interesting point. So origin you mentioned here, and he was, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking at Jan Hus right now. Um, yeah. Uh, what, so he was also condemned as a heretic, but I'm thinking like, and but then he Luther, was condemned by the Catholics though. Right. So let, over, help, help yeah. us understand or try to get a, a, our head around how, how can we, you know, look at historic Christianity in those terms where this guy was condemned here. That guy was condemned there. The this teachings was, was you know, Gnosticism yeah. was a heresy that we should avoid. I, I believe that, right? Pelagianism yeah. is something we should avoid, right? Um, yeah. how, how can we sort of make sense of that history, that broad sweeping scope of history, when a guy like Jan Hus? I mean, I think I get yeah. with everything he's teaching. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so that's a really good question, and that's and that's a really important question because that is sort of one of the pushbacks that progressive Christians will bring. Okay, well, you said they condemned Origen as a heretic, but they condemned a lot of people. You'd be condemned as a heretic today if you lived in, you know, for being Protestant. So um, that, right. that's a fair question. It's a fair thing to bring about. And so that's not the only criteria that we use is whether or not they were condemned. So with Origen, what we have to realize, and I've studied Catholicism pretty, pretty deeply. It's been a while, but pretty deeply in my process. And what it seems to me like is that the Catholic Church really didn't start going, in, in my view, what would be false, yeah. you know, false teachings and adding all of these things, the indulgences and all that, till, you know, seven, eight hundred. Okay, so so the first few hundred years, you've got guys like Augustine, and you've you've got all these amazing, you know, thinkers that were Christian. There, there wasn't this concept of of just some of the the stuff that we would say we protest. Like you're adding, in fact, I think that I've compared this yeah. and it makes Catholics upset. And my, I love my Catholic friends and so thankful for great Catholic thinkers like Peter Kreeft and Aquinas. And, and so I, I don't have any uh, animus toward my Catholic friends. But in my view, this is my view as a Protestant, if you go back to the earliest Christians and, and you, you read what they believe, the early creeds, and then you can see the Catholic Church start adding things Veering, and start changing yep. things. After Alexandria, probably, right? Yeah. And, yep. and and there's even some, I actually just recorded a podcast on the Alexandrian Fathers where I think even they were a bit misunderstood. But, right. uh, you know, there, you see these things being added. And, and at a certain point, Christians are going, this this isn't right. And, this and isn't you know Christianity what? anymore, yeah. That's right. Then the printing press is invented. People get Bibles and they're like, where's, the, where's that in here? You know? <laughs> and so, like, so hey, for those, all of my listeners, she's pointing at like, where is that in here? Like I'm pointing at a, my notes, but you yeah. know, pretending well. it's a Bible, <laughs> but, um, but you know, so there, so essentially if we're going to say we're biblical Christians, we're historical Christians, we have to go back to the beginning. What, what did the earliest Christians believe are, does it agree with the Bible? And then you start tracing that through church history. And so you're going to probably agree with them condemning origin on certain points. Although I have so much grace for those early fathers, cause they were figuring everything out for the first time. Right. It's not like they had the benefit of hundreds and you know, 2000 years right. of scholarship to benefit from. So I don't know, you know, where that stands with the Lord or not, but then you get to a guy like uh, Jan Hus, and you're like, no, he actually had it right, and he was uh, unjustly persecuted and martyred for his faith, because yeah. he was he was fighting for this historical Christianity, and so yeah. I, th I think that would be a better way because the authority isn't, you know, a church, you know, this church council or that. Our, the authority is the Bible. Yes, That's right, our authority, right, and so we can learn from those early fathers. We can learn, but we're they're fallible too. So when I read Augustine, I have a great affection for Augustine, but I right. disagree him on some things right but you know he was a great brother in christ and i really relate with a lot of the things he wrote but he's not my authority the bible's my authority and so i yeah. think that that um you know that needs to be the way we orient our thinking on these kinds of things right that's why i love i was looking at little luther's history too and and he was uh pro, you know had uh Hus, the husses uh 
you know, he was accused of being a Hussite, right? And they said, no, I'm not a Hussite, you know, like, no, you're not heretic. And then he looked at his, he's like, and he was shown his writings. Wait a minute. Um, yeah, I think I actually am, you know, yeah. because he's like scripture, sola scriptura, mm-hmm. um, those, uh, those foundations, uh, that, that we believe from, from what, like you, you linked it to the early, earliest creed mm-hmm. that Paul wrote. Um, and according to the scriptures, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. So I just appreciate that. That's those, those earliest Christians, you know, before we had the full canon, they believed it among themselves. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's right. And so I uh, appreciate that. Um, a lot of pro- uh, progressive Christianity terminologies, nuances are, are almost undetectable. Mm. Right. Um, you appeared in the film American Gospel, which I Christ crucified, the second version, which I highly recommend. But about 30 minutes in the film, into the film, my wife and I are kind of like thinking, wait a minute, what's this about? Right. Uh, because the, they juxtapose the progressive Christian position against historical Christian position. And it was not truly clear or abundantly clear. I could tell the difference, actually, but my wife in some places mm-hmm. was like, wait a minute, what's um, give us some obvious keys and clues as to how an everyday Christian, everyday person, the pastor as well, who's listening, youth pastor who's listening, church leader who's listening, can kind of spot uh, what they're what, what when it's coming at them. Yeah, and that's a great question. And very often, it's a very slow and subtle slide into progressive theology. So there are definitely some some signs that you can look for, and I'll, I'll state those in just a second. But I want to give a piece of advice to Christians who are, you know, if you've heard some things at church that kind of give you a red flag, but you can't really tell and you're not sure, uh, do what a friend of mine did. So she was at this church uh, that I talk about in my book uh, that was progressive, where my faith was challenged. She stayed for, I think, two years longer than I did. But she had these concerns. We ended up talking about this years later. And she she said, what I did was I took a notebook and every time he said something that gave me a red flag, I just wrote it down. But I didn't, I didn't judge it. I just wrote it down. And she said, a year later, I'm looking back at all these notes. And I was like, we have got to get out of here. And so I, I think that's a great piece of advice. And that keeps you from just judging too harshly over one thing. Because maybe he says one thing, and then that's it. You got one thing in your notebook, and you're like, ah, well, he just, he just <laughs> slipped or maybe right. quoted somebody he shouldn't have, but whatever. Um, so that's a good, you know, but she just had pages and pages of this stuff. So, so the signs you're going to look for will be definitely look for that lowered view of the Bible. So historically speaking, everybody who wrote scripture, they are speaking for God. This is God's word. Now, of course, God used humans uh, and, and he used their personalities and their cultural backgrounds and their grammar. I mean, this, they weren't just typewriters, but every word of scripture is God's word. And so that's the view. Anything that is lower than that, you know, if the pastor says, well, I disagree with Paul on this, you know, you, you want to reject that, that that's definitely a progressive view of the Bible. Or if he's quoting from the old Testament and he says, well, the Israelites thought God was telling them this, but we know now that that wouldn't have been the way God would have talked. So that can't be God. Again, you're talking about prophets in the old Testament saying God says this, but you're saying, no, he didn't. So you got to look for this lowered view of the Bible. You also want to look for um, things like feelings and personal conscience being emphasized over biblical mandates. So, you know, if, 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 some, if there's a doctrine or a teaching that makes somebody feel bad, if it makes them feel like um, I don't feel just totally affirmed in everything that I'm doing right now, then it can't be right. That's putting feelings over biblical mandate and over, over facts. Yeah. You're also going to look for a willingness to uh, redefine, reinterpret, or even reject really core essential doctrines of the faith. And I'm not talking about um, issues like, you know, how much should women do in ministry or should we speak in tongues or how do we baptize people? Or the carpet color. No, we're right. talking about yeah. <laughs> the carpet or, you know, <laughs> drums and guitars and things. Ooh. I'm talking about core <laughs> issues of the gospel, like the atonement of Jesus, his second coming, his sinless life, his deity. I'm talking about core things. If they're willing to say, well, you know, maybe he was born of a virgin, maybe he wasn't, it doesn't really matter. Or, you know, like as Richard Rohr would say, Jesus never asked to be worshiped, you know, kind of in implying that we've just deified this 
highly evolved human, you know, that's obviously something you're really going to be looking for. Look right. for the redefinition of words. So if they use words like, I have a high view of scripture, that sounds really good. But what do they mean by that? What do they actually mean when they're saying that? They don't mean that they have it has a high level of authority. It just means they view it very highly and you're reading it wrong, but they're reading it right. I don't believe um, in inerrancy. I believe in a high view. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you're almost going to find no progressives that would believe in inerrancy, but they'll say they have a high view. Um, and then I think the final sign to look for is when the gospel is presented. First of all, if the gospel is presented, that little narrative arc I did a while back, if you never, ever hear that in your church, that's a good sign that they're not a gospel-centered church. If you're not hearing that, and instead, you're hearing about all the good works we should be doing, all of the acts of justice we should be bringing into the world, um, you know, social justice replacing that narrative arc of God's redemptive acts. Now, I want to be really careful with the way I word that right now. Certainly, Christians are called to do good works in the world, as we always sure. have. Um, Christians have been the one that built the hospitals and the universities and have done all this stuff. So, so don't buy the narrative from the progressives that Christians don't care about the poor. I can, I have data. I can show you that is not true, but that is not the gospel. That's not going to save you. You can do all the good works in the world and it's not going to save you. Those Christians have viewed those works as a fruit of our salvation. That's what we do in the world because we're saved, because we want to give other people this beautiful gift of salvation that we have. And of course, we're going to take care of their physical needs as well. As Paul said, we were very eager to do that, but we are focused on the gospel. And so I think that would be an, uh, a sign to look for as well. Great. Those are some great hints. Um, so uh, let's take it down to the practical level uh, to end up here. What, what could some solutions be for churches, especially those on the maybe conservative spectrum? Um, you know, Charles Spurgeon talk, wrote about about the, the slide, right, and the downgrade controversy in his book. Jay Gresham Machen wrote about it at length in Christianity and Liberalism. Um, they, they, they saw the slide back then. What can, can we, uh, do as conservative leaning churches on that spectrum, uh, a positive way forward? Give us some hope. What's, how can we stay relevant, um, uh, in an ever secularized culture and gospel focused? Give us some, some input into that. Well, I want to encourage everybody listening or watching this to know that this is not anything new. Christians have had to do this for 2,000 years. From the moment Christianity got off the ground in the first century, heresies, false teachings, false teachers started coming in, trying to deceive people, uh, couching everything in Christian language, using scripture. And I mean, we see the first church council in history happen right there in the book of Acts, I believe it is, where they're, they're, they're having to deal with this Judaizer party that's telling the Gentiles, if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. And Paul's saying, no, you don't have to do that. And even Peter was intimidated by them. And there was all this stuff going on. And so Christians have had to, we've never had biblical permission to just kind of sit back and go, well, I guess it'll be okay. Like we have to speak up and we yeah. have the historical precedent to know that we can, and that we have the same Holy Spirit that the Christians before us had. And so if you're seeing this in your church, if you're a pastor, this is, this is one thing that I see all the time where you will have a orthodox, you know, little o orthodox church, meaning it's gospel centered, it's, it's theologically correct, but then you'll have one pastor on staff that is leaning progressive, but they won't do anything about it. And that's where the, you know, the whole, the leaven right. leavens the whole lump. And I see it all the time where, and then it starts to poison the whole church. And so pastors, you've got to confront that stuff. If there's a pastor buying into this or teaching Richard Rohr or teaching some of this stuff, you, you've got to disciple that pastor. And if he won't repent from those teachings, you've got to remove the cancer. Right. And that's so not me, easy to do. Let me interrupt there. There, there's this common theme in evangelical Christianity. We ought not to name names. We ought not to, you know, when you called Richard, that's so unkind and, un, un, you know, it's so ugly of you to name the person who's teaching something false. And, and there's this common theme that the New Testament writers did not address or name names outside of Peter and the Judaizers when Paul confronted him to his face. But there's yeah. this common sort of thought Um 
don't name names, you know, but but that's so bizarre because how can you call out a false teacher? How can you like in Romans 16, mark and avoid such that's teaching right. if you don't know who you're marking talking about? Marking it is naming right. it. You right. have right. Marking to name, it is naming it. That's and and it's not, and that verse, if I'm not mistaken, is about the teacher himself. Mark and avoid that teacher. Right. And that's a person. So marking is naming and saying, look, this person don't follow those teachings. But right. um, I always the thing that just it, I don't know why it makes me giggle because I just think. <sighs> just to be this person, but I just say Alexander the coppersmith. This is who Paul <laughs> named <laughs> this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. Did me and great he's, harm. He's, it it says, did me great, great harm. harm. I mean, this the guy Lord is like, will repay him. Yes. Alexander, the I know just, I'm, I always makes me giggle because I think, oh, to be Alexander the coppersmith, the coppersmith. you know, forever your name is emblazoned in the emblazoned Bible. Into, yeah, exactly. <laughs> poor but, guy. Yeah, poor guy. Hopefully he repented. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, we yeah. have other people like Demetrius and uh, I think oh, it's uh, Hymen, Hymenaeus. I'm not Hymenaeus trying to say that. And, uh, Hymenaeus. So, you know, yeah. they're naming people. And and sometimes twice. I think Alexander got named twice by Paul. He got it twice. So he did, yeah. He did, yeah. So, <laughs> So, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where I think we should be very slow to do that. Right. Okay. So very slow. I'm not right. going to name somebody as a progressive and, unless I am sure they are completely denying core doctrines of the faith. Now, there are evangelical leaders I might disagree with on some things, but if I'm not going to name them as a false teacher unless they're actually denying core elements of the Christian faith. And so um, I think we need to be, people are way too quick to do this. Oh, this person disagrees with me on something. So they're a false teacher. And we shouldn't be doing that. But if somebody is Leading, we got to remember Jesus called these people wolves. Right. He referred to false teachers as wolves. What do wolves eat? They eat sheep. So it's out of protection for the sheep. It's out of protection for the church that we have to, you know, call these wolves out and keep them from feasting on God's sheep. You know, and that's what I appreciate about what you did in this book. I mean, I can just sense on every page the fear of the Lord, fear and trembling mm -hmm. that you've done this with without a, a, a hateful bone in your body, so to speak, right? You are yeah. doing it in fear and trembling of the Lord, you know, like like the, the New Testament writers did, you know, yeah. to say, guys, avoid this guy. I just yeah. appreciate that so much. And, you. and, and your attitude, your approach, your behavior, in all of your podcasts, I mean, I haven't heard you ever say an angry word, so... I vouch for I got a little spicy mind. today, though, with you, though, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we can get spicy. All right. I got a little so, spicy. <laughs> so, uh, Thank you yeah. for that, though. I appreciate exactly. that. Exactly. So those thoughts any closing thoughts of encouragement for pastors i mean my, i hope pastors mostly are listening to this but I, as well the everyday layperson youth pastors elders church leaders out there uh, give them a word of encouragement uh you know maybe it's just the gospel again i mean i, yeah. I, wanted, I you know i need to get saved like look yeah, this well, is we that. need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day my right, pastor man. says that he's like i have to preach that to myself every day um so yeah my word to pastors would just be first of all Thank you. I, I can't imagine what a difficult job that is, especially right now with all of the very nuanced, difficult things that you're all having to navigate through and walk your churches through. And just, you know, I, I even with what I've been through with the pastor in that church, like I still have such a love for pastors. And I, I just think that God has called some really great uh, men into this this calling right now to to lead his church and so I'm with you I'm praying for you just encourage you to always keep your your eyes on your sheep it can be so tempting when there's a, a wolf coming in to just keep peace and not worry but just remember if the wolf comes in he's going to be looking for a snack you know he's going to be looking for food and it's your job to protect those sheep right, and that's right. um and the holy spirit will empower you to do that and so i just i just want to encourage anybody listening um that just not to feel alone you know you might be in, in your church and you're hearing all this stuff and you just feel like 
I've had people email me like, where am I supposed to find a church? It's so hard to find a church that still preaches the gospel and isn't going off the rails on all this stuff. And just know there are a lot of people that are going through this. You're not alone. And, you know, Christianity, if you look throughout history, it's we've had the privilege in America, at least over here, um, that we've kind of been the majority for a long time. And that's changing a bit. And so we're not used to it. It's rattling our cages a little bit. But, you know, for the most part, Christians have not been on the side of power in, you know, church history. And so it's a, actually, it's a gift. Any kind of persecution, now we're not persecuted in America yet. I don't know if it'll go that way. You know, we might get, you know, dunked on on Twitter or something, but, you know, that's not real persecution. <laughs> but even that, yeah. you know, like that's God's gift to you. That's God's gift to us to, right, to yeah. stand for him and no matter what people say and stuff. So just hopefully you'll be encouraged by that. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Alisa, here you go. Shameless plug time. Tell us where we can find you, podcast, your website, etc. Just go for it. Well, you can find everything on alisachilders.com. I did just launch a YouTube channel uh, just after kind of COVID hit. We we just worked on this podcast studio. And so I've been doing uh, lots of videos on YouTube. It's just Alisa Childers. Um, and then I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Alisa Childers and podcast blog, all that stuff. You can find alisachilders.com. Good deal. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. We've been talking with Elisa Childers, the author of My Very Well Used, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Thanks for also talking about Zoe Girl back in the day. Yes. Lord, you get me. Man, <laughs> oh man, right. what a great time. You know, back in the day. All back right. Day. So, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we've been speaking with Elisa Childers. Um, and go, like I said, Check out her YouTube site. Great content there. Further stuff about all sorts of topics, apologetics, etc. Um, and then go to her website as well and check out all the resources there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Churchpreneurs Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23, if you do that kind of thing. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's like church and entrepreneurs thrown into one jambalaya. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments or questions, Please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care. All right. Very good. <laughs>